It's good to see you guys. Um, so tonight what I want to talk about is kind of a continuation from uh, last week, but an overall theme that I've been just wrestling with is that you had this amazing event 2,000 years ago where the entire world changed and something clicked and suddenly people were just doing radical and outrageous things for Jesus and, and what Jesus said, what he did and, and how he lived and the example he gave just caused such this amazing response and it's hard to like look at our world today and like wonder like, is that the same message, the same guy, the same words? And so I've been on like this journey to basically find like, what are we missing? Like how on earth can we have people that in this day and age with, with what we've been afforded in technology, we have Bibles on our, we have apps, we have temporary tattoos, we have websites, we have <laughs> everything, shameless plug there. We have, I mean, it's amazing that we have every resource that could be dreamed of in the days of Jesus. And yet we have people that are just like, Jesus, meh. And they're kind of, yeah, maybe kind of, oh, I've been a Christian my entire life. How's that working for you? Eh, it's just, you know, it's kind of part of my life, my heritage. It's like, how do we line that up with what the disciples did in the early apostles? So anyways, last week, um, we we're talking about holiness and what it means to be holy. And we basically came to the conclusion that we have no idea what holiness is, but holiness means wholeness. It doesn't mean avoidance of sin. It doesn't mean uh, being set apart and those things like those, those can kind of work, but the real meaning is to be complete. When the angels say, holy, 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 they're not saying, he's avoiding sin, he's avoiding sin. <laughs> it's like, you are totally complete. And so we understand now that the Bible says that we're holy because he is holy that we've been made complete. And part of that is understanding that holiness is not a feeling. It's not a response that we kind of have and some days we have and some days we don't. It's an event that took place. And so we're focusing on this theory that I believe that the Bible illustrates that, be, that, excuse me, that from identity will flow your behavior. If we want to look at the behavior of the apostles and the disciples, let's look at their identity. What on earth happened there? And so these are the topics that are most faith stretching for me in my walk. And it gives me pause to consider that like myself for so long and so, million, so many millions of Christians that there's been people that have not had peace with God. They gauge how are they doing in their relationship with God based upon what maybe happened in their life recently. And they're struggling to like, what is my status with Jesus? Are we okay? I know he loves me, but, but beyond that, you know, I, I have no grasp on if I feel at peace with Jesus. And so the goal tonight, and I'll give it to you at the end, is discover how on earth do we have millions of Christians who've been transformed, who've been made holy that still aren't at peace with Jesus. And most importantly is let's uncover another leaf in the identity of us, and that is righteous. And I want to also just mention, um, this is kind of like the, the grace kind of teachings, like there's a whole movement in all these teachings and you, you know, Brian Orm, he says a lot of this stuff too, and Paul Ellis, and there's lots of people that I must uh, give acknowledgement to for some of the revelation tonight. But, um, but righteous, what does righteous mean? It means right standing, it means free from guilt, it means morally right or justifiable, acting in accordance with divine and moral law. Righteousness is actually the determining attribute for eternal life. Righteousness in the Bible says that is what it actually governs whether you are in heaven or not. It's not that we pull out the Jesus card and say, hey, I got four stamps punched here, let me in. 
what we understand what the Bible says tonight is actually what the cross did is it changed our status from unrighteous to righteous. Now, if we don't know that, we can find a lot of scary verses in the Bible. I covered one last week about uh, that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. It's like an intense like, statement. How about this one on for size? And Jesus says this in Matthew 5.20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. That's pretty intense. Imagine if that's the first verse you open up in the Bible as a new Christian. You're like, I didn't read that. <laughs> I want my refund. I don't, I don't want to go there. And how many people like feel righteous? Does anybody here be like, yeah, I feel righteous. I mean, it's, it's not an attribute we all identify with in our walk. No one feels righteous. I don't know about you. I don't. But just because you don't feel righteous doesn't mean you aren't. And usually that feeling is attributed to an anxiety in our faith that I identify with, and it's the lacking of peace. And what I found is that a lack of peace is the byproduct of constantly having to justify myself. I don't feel peace because I need to constantly justify myself. I need to like spin the plates of my relationship with Jesus, like, Jesus, are we okay? And then I go, okay, I'm at peace. And then a week later, I got like, the, the plates are like, no, off the sticks, and I gotta spin them again, and so... Usually when we say whether we feel righteous or not, we are all going to come to an event, a sin, a behavior, a mistake in our life, and we're going to base how we feel from that event. If you blew it last night, if you had some huge failure, today you're going to feel, I don't feel righteous at all. And so we're going to gauge these things from these past events, but let me just teach you a little bit tonight about what the Bible says about righteousness. And the first one is this, is that righteousness is not your behavior it is your status. Behavior is not at all related to righteousness. Your status, if you've received Jesus and new life, your status is now righteousness. 2,000 years ago, your status, just like on Facebook, your status changed <laughs> to righteous. Now that's a kind of a cool addition to Facebook. I don't think I could get that one into them. But wouldn't that be awesome is like, you know, Waterbury changes status to righteous, you know? It's like, that's literally what changed. And then everybody comments and likes and shares, whatever. But 1 Corinthians 6.11 says this. It says, you were declared righteous in the name of the Lord. You were declared righteous. Righteousness is a gift. There's no way to be righteous other than to receive the gift of his righteousness through faith. The operative word there is faith is that you derive your righteousness separate from your actions and behaviors. Your righteousness has nothing to do with what you've done, what you've said, what you're gonna do. It has everything to do about faith. Romans 1.17 says this, it says, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith. And it's not like this is just some ordinary like righteousness. It's not just something that's just plain and simple. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says this, for he made him, that's Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. Not only are you righteous, but you are the righteousness of God. I don't think it goes any higher than that. But it's right there for us. And don't you gotta love the math of the new covenant and the math of the Bible here? How many sins did Jesus commit before he was made sin on our behalf? Zero. How many good deeds did you do to become righteous? Zero. Jesus did it all. 
We have no part in this equation and it's liberating. And the reason the gospel is so outrageous is when these words came across, when we were declared righteous, suddenly in an instant, people were finding righteousness by belief and faith instead of what they did. You look in the Old Testament, it's like, you will be righteous if you blah, 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 blah. I mean, there's pages and pages and pages and pages of these things. And in the Old Testament, what you did determined whether or not you were righteous. And so in one sense, it says, by faith, you are righteous. No wonder people freaked out. It's like, are you kidding me? I don't have to like abstain from pork anymore? Like, you know, it's this radical idea that suddenly I get to separate my identity from the mistakes that I make. Remember that behavior flows from identity. And the good news of God declares that you're righteous. You are the righteousness of God for free with no strings attached as a free gift. The old law says that you derived your righteousness from merit and from effort. And it's almost so simple that we just blow past. It's like getting a present and you're so excited to unwrap it and then you get through it and then you're cleaning up and you didn't even see what the gift was. And any child you, you know, you know there's two ways to respond to a gift. You either can receive it or you can reject it. And anybody who has ever given a gift to somebody, you know that one of the most insulting things someone could do after giving a gift is to try and pay you back for it. Wouldn't that be a bummer? I give my wife like a piece of jewelry or something like, I love you, sweetie. And she like pulls out a checkbook. So how often, you know, like that's not the point how it goes. You know, like I give you a gift so that you can receive it. And so when we think about righteousness, when we say that I can either contribute to my righteousness by my effort, by my good deeds, by my strength, and by not drinking or whatever it is, we, in essence, are trying to earn and pay back our righteousness. We think we've got to pay Jesus back for what he did for us. Paul talks us the very same thing in Romans 10. It says, brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved, for I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge, since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish they, their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Essentially, he's saying is that they have a great heart. They have a great intention. But just because you have a good heart can sometimes mean you have the wrong results. It says their zeal, they're trying. They really want to be connected with God, but they are trying to prove it by what they do. And they are ignoring the righteousness of God that is ours. And we need to know that God has zero use for any human-based righteousness. Zero. Any attempt that we give to become righteous and to contribute to it and to pay the gift back is completely useless to us. And when it becomes human effort, it ceases to become righteous. If we think, hey, I can contribute to this, that moment, that action right there voids all credit we get from it. Because Jesus is like, you were righteous because I made you righteous. And so our, our burden to act a certain way becomes a recipe for self-justification and self-righteous religion. And you'll spend all day trying to prove that you are good enough and none of your time living transformed. Jesus says, you're good enough. I just want you to live transformed, but we get it the other way around. Are you guys with me? Number two. This, is, this one's controversial. <laughs> what you receive from God is greater than what you will ever do for God. What you receive from God is greater than what you will ever do for God. God is more concerned with what you receive than what you do. 
at the end of the life, he won't be like, so give me a list of like, you know, all the things you did in my name, like show it to me. You know, do you have a notebook? Do you have a journal? Like he, he, we're going to be identified in heaven by who he is in our life, not by what we do. But Christians are so preoccupied with doing something for God that they have never taken the time to fully receive from him. Let me say that again. There are so many Christians that are so preoccupied with doing something for God that they have never taken the time to receive from God. God's not looking for you to be busy. You know, at the, they talk about you know, us having our face-to-face and, and hearing what the Lord says to us. He says, good job, well, good, and what servant? Faithful, not busy, not productive, not efficient, not results-driven. It's, it's faithful. And so God wants us to have revelations of truth. I, I have like unlimited messages for how we could like suck less in our life and all those things. But what Jesus really wants for us is he wants us to possess truth. Because truth is what's going to determine action. Identity determines behavior and truth determines action. So if we never receive the truth, we might be behaving in ways that are completely contrary to what God designed for us. And what I've found is that God will never desire me to be busy for the sake of having intimacy with God. He will never prefer that I go and like do Christian things at the expense of just being in his presence, being still, being silent. He always prefers the presence. He doesn't want results without the relationship. He's not looking for performance. He's looking for intimacy. What's hilarious is that this exact situation is right here in the gospel in Luke chapter 10. Let me read it to you. This is with the story of Mary and Martha. It says, as Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to Jesus and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Jesus replies, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. The one who made the impression on Jesus was the one who was not trying to impress Jesus. The one who was not trying to impress Jesus is the one who impressed him. Sometimes we get caught up that we need to do and be busy. But I so firmly believe that Jesus would rather have you receive than have you do. It's amazing that one of the words, you know, things Christians say, just serving the Lord, just serving the Lord. How are you serving the Lord? I'm serving the Lord really well. How are you serving the Lord? You know, like we get that. It seems like normal. But there's this pesky scripture that says, but the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve. So if he's not coming to be served, who are you serving? <laughs> We're getting so caught up that we gotta, we gotta do it. We gotta like serve him. And he said, I did not come to be served, but to serve. And in our busyness, we forget to spend time with God. Doing things for him doesn't mean you're spending time with God too. I've learned that a thousand times over. Just because I can do something for God doesn't mean I'm doing anything with God. Let me get an amen from that one. And I wonder how many of us are going to be Martha's when we reach heaven. 
And we're going to stand before Jesus and he's like, wow, you spent all your time being busy and serving me when I came to give you life. It's like, I came to give you life and you are, are, are so consumed with trying to serve me that you never possessed life. You never actually took hold of it. You never were transformed by it. That there are people changing the world just by the simple truth that you are righteous. And so you spent all your time baking, being busy, having your hands do all these different things for my name. And I asked you to be in relationship with me, to possess truth because truth will set you free. If we don't have truth, then maybe we're not as free as we think. Number three is stop trying to improve your old self. Stop trying to improve your old self. The death of your old self is just as significant as your righteousness now. Let me say that again. The death of your old self. I mean, that could just be its own message on its own. I won't bore you guys to death on that one. But the death of your old self is just as important as the scripture that says that you are righteous. Romans 6, 6 says that we know that our old self was crucified with him. Crucified was past tense, long time ago. I got news for you. The old man is unfixable. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been crucified. It wasn't like he got a flesh wound. Like, no, the old man was crucified, dead, kaput, elfine, for those who speak Spanish. You are righteous for the very reason that your old self is dead. But we forget that the old self is dead. Paul, several times, over and over again through the, the New Testament to the church in Colossia says, you died with Christ. To the Christians in Rome says, we died with Christ. To the Corinthians we all died with Christ. I mean, it's this re recurring theme. And your baptism into his death is the most important thing that you will, your baptism into his death is the most important thing that ever happened to you. Yet many Christians are ignorant. Being baptized, your old self, into his death could be the single most and greatest transformation of your life, and we never even knew it. Ephesians 4.24 says, and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. The old self was unfixable, but the new self, do you see it, is created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Sounds like a pretty good upgrade. It sounds like Jesus didn't want anything to do with what we had as default. But how many know that it takes no faith to feel guilty and shameful. It doesn't take anything. That's kind of like really easy for all of us to do. But when we hear that we are righteous, when we hear that we need to put on the new self, it's kind of like a, a leap of faith for us because we don't feel it. Our emotions don't line up. But when you sin, it takes absolutely no faith to feel unrighteous and unforgiven. And it takes all the faith in the world to then look at the cross and say to the Holy Spirit, I am crucified with you. I messed up. But because of Jesus, I am still righteous. That's what takes faith. And if you don't know that you've died, then you won't ever really live. If you don't know you've died, then you will never live. Pretty deep, huh? Instead, you will spend your life trying to die. Dying to self, dying daily, crucifying the flesh. And if the average believer could grab hold of this, that you died, then then we would have all these self-help programs at churches disappear. 
Not to like rag on any churches in particular, but there's a lot of ministries that exist trying to improve your old self. And instead of trying to improve your old self, we don't need like self-help, we don't need more willpower, we don't need all these programs. We need to build faith to know that we are righteous. It could just be a class and they're just like one placard, you're righteous. Any questions? (laughs) Meeting dismissed. But it takes, it takes a lot of work to like build that into your mind. It takes a lot of effort to start living by that. But we, we keep on trying to do this whole dying daily. Did you know that um, die to self isn't even in the Bible? Fun fact of the night. We've probably all said it. I need to die to self. Actually, not in the Bible. It's one of those theologies that got misquoted from another scripture that we all grabbed onto. Let me tell you where it came from. Matthew 16, 24 says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross. Now we think, oh, you know, I gotta, well, Jesus was actually saying your effort won't get you to heaven. But you want to use your effort to get to heaven. You want to use your effort to bring yourself to righteousness. But he says, you have to deny yourself because you're a fool who thinks you can do it all. And he's like, you can't get yourself there on your own. So you must deny yourself and receive the righteousness of God. He was pointing to the cross. He wasn't pointing that you're so miserable. He's pointing to the cross. He wasn't saying that you are so miserable, you need to die. Because when we remember that our old self died on the cross... We need to remember that the new life is created in righteousness, which we have now. But we got it all confused and we're trying to kill off the very version of ourselves that's new. We're thinking, oh, I gotta die to self. But if you are in Christ, you have a new self. You're like, kind of like trying to murder what Jesus like made new. He's like, good grief. You're so convinced you need to die daily that you will, sub- here you go, line of the night. If you think that you need to die daily and that is what you think all the time about your faith, you will suppress yourself into living such a miserable, depressing, and self-deprecating existence you will never do anything great for the kingdom. Because you're going to be so paranoid, well, I better not do something too good because then maybe God will, you know, have some glory taken from him. Like how motivated are you are to do something great when you're like, I got to die to self, I got to die to self. You died once on the cross. How how many know that Jesus is not coming back for a second cross? Amen. You're not going to die again. Like if you're in Christ, your old self died once. There's not going to be a victory lap for that for you. It's one time. But how if Jesus says, I came to give you life, but you are so consumed with dying to self. Do you guys kind of catch how that's kind of messed up? I really think that sometimes that we diminish our dreams because we think they're selfish. We have great aspirations. We have a great performance coming up here in a few minutes, right? But I think sometimes we suppress what God is raising in us because we think that it's anti-dying to self. We think it's self-inflating. We think it's glory-hogging. We think it's self-promotion. Do you know that God is not in competition with you? If my daughter, I mean, she's 20 months old, she walks pretty good. If she started doing cartwheels, how ridiculous would it be if I like knocked her over? It's like, we well, can't do that yet, you know? That's too good. 
It's so bad, right? But we get this mindset like, well, I better not dream too big. I better not like go too big. I better not try so hard. I better not like become really good at what I'm doing because, oh man, what if God doesn't get all the glory? Oh, what happens then? And so we as Christians, in the name of dying to self, we shoot real low. We shoot nice and low. My God, that person's really striving. Glory hog, self-righteous. I think it's time that like when we, we look at the Bible, like people were changing the world. They weren't thinking, oh, I don't want the world to change too much because then God won't get the glory. <laughs> they weren't thinking that. They weren't thinking, I got to deny myself and I have to do these things. And, and, and they, they were thinking that, wow, I, I need to live a radical, awesome life because here's the truth. Is if you read Ephesians, you will understand that you, your life is the inheritance for Jesus. What that means is what you decide to make of this life now, all that you do is what Jesus gets as a reward. So how can we in the same token say I need to die to self when Jesus is like, hey, don't die too much. I'm getting that after you're done with that. He honestly wants us to thrive. He wants us to swing big. He wants us to do amazing, amazing things. Yes, deny self because we know that Jesus is the only way. Definitely. I'm not going to try and earn my righteousness. But am I going to try and live a radical life? Yes. Am I going to try and do everything to change the world? Yes. Why? Because one, Jesus has empowered me. Two, it's, it's because that's his reward. The best way I can worship Jesus is to change the world. Is that he gets that. And we all should be there. Fourth and finally, self-denial leads to self-gratification. Self-denial leads to self, I'm sorry, self-glorification. Maybe gratification, but mostly self-glorification. The problem on any message on self, even noble-sounding messages on self-denial, is that it does one pesky thing. It actually promotes self you thought about it? When we're so focused on, oh, I gotta deny self, we're actually thinking about ourselves more than anything else. It's like someone is like, be humble, be humble, be humble, be humble. <laughs> you're thinking about yourself the entire time. You know, you're like, think about others, think about others. It's, it's all those things that actually make no sense. And so it actually, I think this whole movement of self-denial and self-deprecation and, and all these things, it actually fuels self-centeredness, which is the root of all that is wrong in humanity. Amen? Amen? You can find every atrocity by somebody who was themselves trying to take over other people, trying to make themselves powerful. I mean, it's self-centeredness is actually the root, I think, of almost everything, every vice that we find. And so when we focus on self denial, we're actually making it all about us. Jesus is like, just focus on me. You don't need to like self-deny, self-die, just focus on Jesus. Just think about Jesus, think about his righteousness. And it's, it's in the other religions like, you know, monks and, and things, they, they attain spiritual goals by denying themselves from physical pleasures. And I think by trying harder, increasing your game, following these 10 steps, go into isolation, wear a shock collar, like they, they, they do all these things like make themselves feel better. And I'm not denying the, the benefits of abstinence. Definitely hear me right. I'm not denying that staying away from certain things is not good for your health. But what I'm saying is that skipping cheeseburgers won't make you holy and righteous. 
The truth is that you can do nothing to save yourself or make yourself any more pleasing to God. Jesus did it all. It's kind of a bummer. It's kind of like, well, I can't do anything to make Jesus love me more and I can't do anything to make him love me less. It just kind of is because you're the righteousness of God. It's the revelation that your old self was crucified with Christ that'll now set you free. I say, I'm gonna live a radical life because I'm righteous, I'm whole. And people are obsessed with sin management too. And they have no peace with God because they believe that obedience will finally result in peace with God if they can finally be obedient in this one area. I mean, so many people, they push all of their chips onto like one topic or one area, maybe one issue, one vice, and so they put it all there and they're like, if I can just beat this one, then I'll finally have peace with God because they're convinced that what they can do will influence how God loves them, how God sees them, how God receives them. When in fact that nothing will do that. Romans 5.1 says this, having been declared righteous then, righteous then by faith, we have peace toward God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Translation, the single and only way you have peace with God is through righteousness. That's it. How do you get righteousness? Well, let me rewind 20 minutes ago. I can take you back through it. I don't need to. But you get it that we are given righteousness. We have been given peace with God through our nature of being righteous, through our new self, because the old self is gone. So the fact that we don't feel at peace is is a complete lie in our mind because it says that we are the righteousness of God and it is through righteousness that we have peace toward God. Your identity is what results in peace towards God. Am I righteous? Yes. We don't have to, um, we don't have to try and replicate good behavior over and over again. Matthew 6.33 says this, says, seek the kingdom and his righteousness first. How many know that first means first? Pretty profound. He didn't say, seek my righteousness second. He didn't say, after you do something bad, clean it up, fix it up, look good, volunteer, feel really, really bad, maybe tell a few people, and then seek my righteousness. Why? Because he knew that we would never get to step two if that was step one. So whether we are in positive standing in our mind or negative standing in our mind, he says, seek first the righteousness. And we seek first the righteousness, we find out that his righteousness is on us. That's what he's saying. He's saying that no matter where we are in life, we seek righteousness, the righteousness of God. When we seek that, Jesus, what is the righteousness of God? Wow, I have the righteousness of God in black and white letters. But if you are focusing on your sin, then it means that you're not thinking about righteousness first. Amen? If you are focusing on your sin, it means you're not focusing on righteousness. And the church has an unhealthy obsession with sin. I hate talking about sin, typically. Um, We spend our lives watching out for sin, resisting sin, fighting sin, hiding sin, running from sin, owning up to sin, talking about sin, turning from sin, hopefully overcoming sin. With so many emphasis on, with so much emphasis on sin, guilt, and shame, is it any wonder that so many of us don't feel righteous? It's not that we have a let's talk about sin problem. We actually have a, we don't talk about who we really are in Christ problem. 
Which brings me to a great point. If we are righteous, if we are holy, if we have peace with God, then what about sin? Certainly we're all capable of sinning, right? So how does that relate in here? I know it's all in your minds, right? I have to wait till my next message, I tell you. 